Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, I've talked about this before in lots of previous videos, that politics, generally speaking, is a complete waste of time, that spending your time in it every single day is not going to make your life any better. Now we have a peer-reviewed study that shows that not only is it a waste of time, but in many ways, it can actually be damaging to your physical health, your friendships, relationships, all this type of stuff. So I'm going to be talking about this. In other news, we have Robinhood reintroducing their cash management into their app with high interest savings, about 2% on it. I'm going to be talking about this, what I think it means for Robinhood's future. And then we have Blizzard, the developer for some of my favorite childhood games growing up. This company has found itself in the midst of controversy. They had one of their pro players in an interview express support for the Hong Kong protests. And Blizzard's reaction was to suspend that player for a full year and take all of the prize money that he's earned. And of course, this made Western fans, American fans, very upset that Blizzard was trying to appease the Chinese government. I'm going to be talking about this and whether Blizzard made the right decision, what they should have done, that type of thing. Now, before going into any of those news stories, I have to talk about this. And I realize it's a, a grainy image of a flowchart. Uh, let me explain. I think that there's three of them, actually. There's three different flowcharts I'm going to show you. One is of poor households. The next one is of middle class or quote unquote rich households. These are people that make a lot of money, but they actually never generate any kind of wealth. And then we have wealthy people. These flow charts, they're done by somebody named Stanley Riggs. He's a contributor to Business Insider. I think that these are the single best illustrations of the differences in behaviors and spending patterns that separate people that systemically stay poor that systemically stay tied to their job and, you know, that middle class area and people that become truly wealthy, that they have financial independence. I have never come across anything that illustrates that better than these flowcharts. Let's go ahead and start out with this first one, poor households. In each of these charts, there's a few main boxes. You have your earned income. This is money that you're renting your time out for, that you have to go and clock in to earn this money. That's your earned income. We have expenses here. This is your cost of living. Just to exist in our world costs some money. If you want to have anything like a roof over your head or electricity or cable, you know, any of that type of stuff, the basics that people have to live in Western countries, you have th these expenses, right? And then you have liabilities. These are additional expenses that aren't really necessary. Cars, boats, expensive phones, things like that. It's just other stuff. And then we have assets. Of course, everybody that watches my channel should know what an asset is. It's anything that is generating you a return. It's money that's working for you. That's what assets is. Now, unfortunately, people that are poor, and the definition that I'm using for poor here, are people that do not earn enough income that they really have any freedom beyond their core expenses, meaning that they can try to lower down their cost of living and they can be extremely frugal and they still have almost no money beyond that. They can't go out and buy vehicles or the latest phone. They can barely afford just their core expenses to live. That's where this group finds themselves. Now, if you have yourself in this group, that's okay. We've all been there before, at least all of us, you know, unless you had parents that just gave you a lot of money everybody's been in this place before. So I've been in a place where I was earning less than 20000 a year. It's very difficult to actually do anything that's extra stuff if you're earning such little amounts of money, right? So 
The primary goal, if you find yourself in this situation where you have very low income, you can barely afford the bare minimum cost to live, is increasing your income. That may be obvious, but a lot of people don't view that as a primary goal, right? They want to invest when they're not making any money. And the hard part is, is investing, you have to have capital to start with. You have to have an income stream to be able to put that money into your assets. If you have no additional income beyond your expenses, you really can't start building up your assets. So people in this category, the best bang for your buck, the thing that you can do to increase your lifestyle immediately is start earning more income, maybe try to further your education, maybe try to look for jobs that have a a better career path in the future. Anything that you can do to try to increase your income will get you further than anything else at this point. So this category, if you're very poor, you don't make hardly any money, it's very easy to understand the solution of this, right? Your main goal should be trying to make more money. And I think most people that are in this category, I think most people understand it. They're working on increasing their income. Most of them are starting out in their career, figuring out what they want to do. And eventually they will move out of this category. The good news for people that are poor I think in the the US that are trying to actively improve their situation. I'm a general optimist. I think that most people are able to move themselves into this category right here, the middle class slash the rich quote unquote uh, category. This is the category of people that have moved out of where they can afford a little bit more now than their base expenses. They can afford to have a few luxuries. And a lot of them are actually high income earners. There might be actually doctors in this category. There might be lawyers, people with college degrees, people that make good money. Now, the reason that rich is in quotation marks is because this is a trap. This is where most Americans are, I know for sure, where you make decent money, but the choices you make keep you trapped. They keep you in a situation where you're beholden to other people, where You don't have any kind of financial freedom. You're trapped to your job. You're trapped to your earned income. You're constantly renting your time out. Now, this flow chart here, as I said, it encapsulates most Americans. I think the majority of people are in this category. The median household income in the U.S. is around $65,000 a year. So the majority of people are in this place where they're earning at least a decent household income. The problem is, is if your spending habits resemble this, it leaves you very vulnerable. You're never going to generate wealth, and it leaves vulnerabilities where problems can arise if any kind of unexpected expenses come up. I live right now in a neighborhood where the homes are pretty expensive, and most of the people that live around me are high-income earners. So the average sale price of a home right now in the neighborhood I'm in is somewhere around $500,000, maybe a little bit more, right? The people that live around me, in order to get mortgages for their house, they have to have income verification approved, meaning when they apply for a loan, they call their boss and they make sure that they're making the amount of money that they say that they're making. That's earned income right here. So we know that most of my neighbors are making decent money by the fact that they're able to afford a home that's $500,000. The thing that's interesting about this is if I go to Zillow.com and I click on foreclosures, I can still see homes that will pop up every once in a while in my neighborhood that have pre-foreclosure, meaning that those families have not paid their mortgage for four months and the bank has sent a letter of default to them, which is a public notice, that's how Zillow gets it, telling them that they're going to foreclose on their home. So in three or four months, the bank will move to foreclose if they don't settle it with the bank or if they don't make any additional payments. Now, how do people that at one point had great earned income, probably are educated, how do they get a point where they can't even afford to pay their home mortgage? 
I think the answer is pretty simple. Most of them, in the majority of cases, they probably have spending habits that resemble this. Because if you do this for years and years at a time, you never generate a level of cushion there. You never generate any kind of wealth to withstand vulnerabilities, and you're always going to be totally dependent on your job. So if you ever lose your job, and you can't afford health insurance, or you lose your job and you, you can't find a new job right away, all of a sudden, you can't make your mortgage payments. So how do we avoid this? First of all, let's look at what they're actually doing. We have the earned income here, which is unlike the poor households. These people are middle class. They make $65,000 on average. Uh, some of their money goes to expenses, not all of it. They have a lot of discretionary money. The majority of their money goes to things that they don't really need goes to new cars, those car loans, which are like $500 to $700 a month. So now they're not only paying their mortgage, which might be 1500 bucks a month, but they're paying for two car loans, which are $500 a month each. So now they're paying $2,500 a month in payments there. Plus they have maintenance, utilities, fuel, insurance. They're paying for streaming services and entertainment. They're paying to eat out. And before you know it, that $65,000, they pay taxes on it. After the taxes, they might make 50000 And then they pay for health insurance. That takes off probably another 10000 so that 40000 Then they pay for their home. That might be another $17,000, $20,000 a year. So now they're at $20,000. And then the rest of it gets gobbled up by these liabilities. Before you know it, the high income, the education that these people had between paying for their liabilities that they've added on and their expenses, they have no extra money. When they get a paycheck, it just flies out to all these different banks, all these different companies that have automatic withdrawals on their, their bank account. It leaves one part of this equation empty. That is the assets right here. And that's sad because assets are the best part of this whole equation, but this is what most of the middle class are completely ignoring. They're favoring liabilities over assets. And what are assets? This portfolio here, my portfolio, I have $61,000 in it. This is invested into assets. Assets are anything that give you return. Your money is going out and making more money for you. Generally speaking, that is what an asset is. My portfolio here is a dividend growth portfolio. It's on a broker called M1 Finance. There's a link to it in the description if you're interested in checking it out. But what this is, is invested in different bonds, real estate, and all the different sectors of the economy. I've gone through and identified companies that pay you money residually. They pay quarterly, monthly. They're paying you out dividends all the time. If I go and I look in the past month, I've made $509. Of that, I've earned $241 in dividends. That's being a shareholder of a company. Assets pay you back money. These earned dividends was totally passive. Instead of me spending the $61,000 on buying a huge truck where I'm paying $700 a month for it, plus gas, plus insurance, instead, I'm earning money. I'm earning $241 a month. That's the difference. Is assets, they do not take money out of your pocket. It puts money back in your pocket. Now, if I go to this graph here, this is where most people reside. This is our common education is that once you earn income, don't worry about generating assets. Just go ahead and spend your money. And if you have any financial problems, all that means is that you need to earn more money. If you ever lose your job because you didn't perform well or you, know, you weren't having a good month or something, and then it comes crashing down and your goal is to find a new job. That's where most people reside is in this, I call it a rat race because I kind of think it is. You're just trapped working for somebody else all the time. Let's go ahead and move on to the next category, true wealth. Wealthy people, they have in common a distinct way that their cash flow works. Very little goes to expenses. The majority rolls over to assets. Again, these are rental properties, bonds, dividend-paying stocks, anything that is residually paying you back money. Those assets, what do they do? They come down, it's formed as passive income. 
most of that gets reinvested back into assets. When the amount of assets that you have get big enough, you can start using your passive income to pay for all that fun stuff. You should very rarely use your earned income, the time that you've rented out for yourself, to pay directly for liabilities. This should be something that is very rare in your life. Instead, the majority of it should go to assets. Once your assets get big enough, use the yield of that to eventually pay for all your liabilities. Then you don't have to work for it. Then you can buy all that fun stuff and you don't have to sacrifice your time for it. That is what I'm doing right here. I'm building this portfolio up as quickly as I can. Right now, I, I've put in a lot of money, especially the last month, I put in like $4,000. So that's at a rate I don't think I'll be able to sustain, but I have tried to build up this portfolio as fast as I can. Any kind of extra money I make from any kind of side projects, my primary work, from YouTube income, all this type of stuff, I'm pooling into my portfolio. I want this number, the amount of dividends that I'm earning, to accelerate and compound as quick as possible. Essentially, what I'm doing is modeling my behavior after this flow chart. My earned income, I try to reduce the amount of expenses I have. I reduce the amount of liabilities I have. I have the vast majority of my money that I work for and I spend my time for go into my assets. And then right now I'm in the phase where these assets are producing yield and that yield gets reinvested and purchases more assets. Now I've been doing that for a couple of years now and I've already seen this accelerate a lot. If I go back and I look at all time, this is about two years, I've generated $1,600 in dividends. You know, I started this portfolio with $100. But if I look back just the last quarter, just three months out of those two years, $496 in dividends, almost 500 in dividends was just the past 90 days. So this is accelerating very fast. I'm building this up as quick as possible. What specific vehicle you use, whether it's dividend stocks, whether you're buying different bonds and whether you're buying rental properties, some of them have different risk tolerances. There's different work associated with them. There's different interest and knowledge associated with them. But the general idea is the same, to buy as many assets as quickly as possible, reinvest those, and grow your passive stream of income as quick as possible. That's how you become wealthy. And doing this brings in a lot more benefits than just earning this money monthly, earning these couple hundred dollars a month in dividends and, and growing that, that income stream. There's other benefits to doing this. When you start to build up a portfolio and it starts to become a sizable amount, because if you start building one, it will grow bigger and bigger. The portfolio will get to a point where it's a lot of money. And what happens with that is it makes it so that you're less vulnerable, that you're not totally dependent on your next paycheck from your job. That if you had a rough patch or anything like that, I have money sitting here on the sideline that I could use. Not only that, but the money can be used as collateral to get a low interest loan. If I ever needed my home payment paid because I was short on cash for a couple months, I have a line of credit of 21500 based on my portfolio value at a very low interest rate. So this brings in a lot of financial benefit outside of just generating that income stream. It lowers your anxiety, it lowers your stress levels at work because again, there's just less financial stress when you have money sitting on the side here that's highly liquid that could be used in cases of emergency. So this is something that everybody should be working for. It should improve your life in multiple ways. And I think it's one of the only ways to actually, in a calculated manner, become wealthy. The only other ways to become wealthy are to start some app or some company that goes crazy and you make a lot of money. You can try to gamble it and win the lottery, but those aren't ways that the majority of people are going to find successful. Most of the time, it's going to be a lifestyle doing this where most of your money gets invested. All right, now on the note of changing your behavior and how I think that affects different outcomes, of course, I've talked about this before, that I this is why I don't talk about politics in my channel. Now we have an article that references a peer-reviewed study that today's politics is actually bad for your health. 
starts off saying an Iowa man is so bothered by the political climate that his psychologist says he asked for a higher dosage of his anxiety medication. It goes on to say in one part of this that of 800 people in a nationally representative poll, it was 11% say politics has adversely affected their physical health. 18% say that they've lost sleep because of politics. 26% say that they have become depressed when a preferred candidate lost. So it's caused depression in 26% of people. 26% say that politics has led them to hate some people. They're self-reporting that because of politics, they've decided that they hate some people. And 20% say that differences in views have damaged valued friendships. Now, of course, these numbers, these stats here are kind of depressing, but I totally believe them. I think that they might actually be underreported. If you guys know people that are heavily involved in politics or you've seen the conversations online and different comment sections of different articles, people really start to hate each other if anything political is involved. Friendships, I know, have been damaged because of politics. I, I know people have lost sleep because of it, all this stuff. I completely believe it because you can see it all around you. You know, some people ask me my take on certain candidates or things like that. This is why I don't delve into it. I don't think it does any good. It doesn't serve any purpose. Whereas focusing on this stuff, trying to learn how finance works, how money works, how to make your money work for you, that is stuff that is overwhelmingly beneficial to anybody that's willing to learn it. This stuff will improve your lifestyle. It will not cause you to lose sleep. It'll not cause you to have anxieties. It will reduce all of that. You'll sleep better knowing that you have money working for you, that you have savings, that you have financial stability. This stuff here, this constant drama of politics and people starting to hate each other over nothing, over stuff that they can't even control, they can't even really affect, I don't think it's generally good for people. It was interesting, though, to see the study come up that validated my thoughts on it. In other news, we have Robinhood's cash management account. They're coming out with a whopping 2.05% interest rate cash management account. And this time they're doing it for real with FDIC insurance. No more of that SIPC insurance that isn't really intended to cover bank accounts or cash management accounts. This time Robinhood is doing it the right way. So what do I think about this? Am I as excited as other people? I'm excited for the people that have Robinhood. I think if you're already using this application and then they come out with this offering, I think that's amazing. You know, you just have a, an additional benefit to your platform now. You have a high interest place to store your money that's on the sidelines that you're not intending to invest for a little bit. But I will say this whole game of we have Robinhood, Betterment, Wealthfront, Alibank. It's like playing whack-a-mole. One of them comes up with the best incentive at one point, right? And then the other one will announce that they have a better incentive. And every time that happens, it's big news. Lots of videos made around it. Everybody's shifting around their money to the latest one. I'm more in the camp of, uh, I think that a lot of times it's more of a hassle to constantly be moving your money around than it's, than it's worth. The difference between an Alley savings account at 1.9% and Robinhood at 2.05%, 15 basis points, that's, you know, unless you have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's not enough to really get me excited for that type of change. So again, this is great for people that have Robinhood, but I have never been into the whole idea of constantly chasing what company has the best offering for the month. I think it's a great thing for people that are already using Robinhood. All right, now I have to talk about this. So we have an instance here where this company had one of its players express support for Hong Kong in one interview. And Blizzard's response to that was very swift and very harsh. It says, the decision to spend Chung, a professional Hearthstone player in Hong Kong, for a year while forcing him to forfeit a reported $10,000 in prize money prompted a backlash in the United States similar to the public relations debacle the NBA has faced this week. Gamers posted angrily, 
on social media and in forums, while politicians saw it as another troubling sign of, of China's chilling clampdown on speech worldwide. So the situation here is you have a publicly traded company, you have Blizzard, where their major goal is to make money. That's what they're trying to do. Now, the issue is, is that China represents a huge market for them. Asia in general, there's a lot of gamers there. This is a, a giant market to them. It represents billions of dollars of income. And they have one player expressing support for Hong Kong, which China is not a fan of these protests. And that support, that single expression of it, could shut down their entire market, for all Blizzard knows. Could shut out that entire market, that whole area of the world to them, to be able to sell their games. And if you think that's an overreaction or China would never do anything like that, right? One tweet from an NBA coach may cost the NBA billions of dollars. Because one tweet from the NBA coach did similar thing. Express support for the Hong Kong protests, and China responded by shutting down broadcasts of it, showing that they're willing to sever their relationship with the NBA because one person of the NBA tweeted something that they didn't like. That's how sensitive of a government we're talking about here. They're willing to cut off a relationship with the NBA that's been fostered over decades, that's worth billions of dollars, that they have major interest in and markets in. There's nothing like the NBA. And they're willing to cut that off because one person in the U.S. as part of the NBA expressed support for something they didn't like. That is the type of government you're dealing with here. So you look at it from Blizzard's perspective. They don't want this to happen. And if they get China cut off, that's a huge market. Their market cap for their whole company could be slashed in half if that happens. So they responded to the support of Hong Kong, this player support of Hong Kong, very aggressively in order to try to appease China. Now, how did Westerners take that? If you're like you or me, you know, uh, I'm American. I like our country. I like the ideals that it has. I think that they're largely just Western ideals of freedom of speech, being able to express support for whatever cause you want. I'm in that camp. I don't like that China can use its market in an attempt to bully and suppress people's viewpoints. They do that with their own society. They do that with people inside living in China. You know, they can't really express a lot of the views that they want to. Well, now they're using their market as a means to suppress people's point of views outside of China which is a pretty amazing thing that they're accomplishing here. Marco Rubio, who's a conservative politician, said, recognize what's happening here. People who don't live in China must either self-censor or face dismissal and suspension. China using access to market as leverage to crush free speech globally. Implications of this will be felt long after everyone in U.S. politics today is gone. And then Ron Wyden, who is a liberal senator. This is So these are people on opposite ends of the political spectrum that agree on almost nothing politically. They agree on this. He says, Blizzard shows that it's willing to humiliate itself to please the Chinese Communist Party. No American company should censor calls for freedom to make a quick buck. Then we have uh, not just politicians. We have players in the fan base. This is the Hearthstone fan base. This is the Blizzard game that the player in question, he was a professional player at. This person here says, stepping down from the mod team. After four years of being a moderator for this sub and an advocate for this game, I'm leaving the moderation team as this is no longer a company I want to support or follow. I appreciate the community and my time spent with y'all. Good luck, Blizzard. 48,000 upvotes, which means that uh, quite likely millions of people saw this single thread. So you have an enormous amount of Western fans that are upset. You have politicians that are upset. There's a lot of outcries that Blizzard censoring somebody because of their support for Hong Kong is completely the wrong thing to do. Now, personally, I know that this might upset some people, but I, I think that people are not giving credit to the situation Blizzard is in here. And I want to illustrate this and see if you can give an honest assessment if you put yourself in a situation. Let's give you a hypothetical. Let's say that you have a job 
where you're earning great money. Let's say you're earning $100,000 a year and there's no other job like it. This is the only one. The only one close to it earns maybe $40,000, $50,000 a year. But let's say that job, the one thing you have to deal with is a very rude boss. Somebody, he just doesn't treat you well. He makes you tiptoe around certain issues. And you know that if you say anything too negative, you know, if you express your freedom of speech and you criticize him in a way that he deserves to be criticized, that that would cause you to be fired. And again, this isn't something where you can just go across the street and find another job that pays the same. This is the only job that pays this well. Would you be so quick to mouth off to your boss? Are you at your job, if you have somebody that's rude at your work, kind of annoying at times, are you quick to exercise your freedom of speech? And so you might sacrifice your income, your stability, your ability to pay your mortgage on time. Put yourself in those shoes when it's actually something where you have something at stake, where it's a situation where you go to work and you want to make money. That's your primary goal. A lot of people go to work and they deal with all sorts of bosses and coworkers and managers that they would love to say all sorts of things to these people. They would love to mouth off to them, but they want money. And to get money, you have to be working. To be working, you can't offend everybody that you're working with. Otherwise, you might get fired. And in some situations, you lose a very favorable position. So try to put yourself in those shoes and honestly give an honest assessment of yourself. If you were in that situation, how quick could you be to exercise your freedom of speech? Or would you try to just put your head down, make that money, and go on with your way? I view Blizzard very much in the same situation. They are a publicly traded company. Their obligations are to their shareholders and to their consumers. They're trying to make money. They do not want to willingly offend a giant demographic of income that has the most future growth potential. With China, there's no other job across the street. There's no other region in the world that is in the same situation that has future growth potential. India is still a little too underdeveloped. They're getting internet and they'll, they'll get there, I think, very soon. But China is that area right now. The West already has Blizzard games, already pretty saturated. This Asia area of China represents a huge opportunity for Blizzard, huge growth potential, and a lot of revenue. So I think the people are trying to act as though this is so cut and dry, that it's such an easy answer. I think if you had those same people and you applied the situation similar to them, where it actually affects their income, I think that their advice and their actions would differ. So try to think about that when you're thinking about Blizzard and the backlash they're receiving. At one side, I don't like the idea that China is clearly using its market to censure some of our companies and the the way that they do, they have to do this whole song and dance. On the other end, I can totally understand why Blizzard is doing this. I think many people, if they're faced with the same dilemma, they would do the same exact thing Blizzard's doing. I'll also note that Blizzard came out with this statement. This came out just last Friday, and they're just trying to explain themselves. And they're pretty much saying, hey, look, guys, like you're okay to have your political views. You know, We stand for freedom of expression and all that, but... We're providing a game that's a worldwide game that appeals to people from all different nations and different communities, and we want to bring people together. Our games are are bringing people together through the spirit of competition and all that type of stuff, and it's not the place to put your political views. So post-game interviews where you should be talking about the game and the competition, that's not the time or place to put your political views. So that's pretty much what they said in it. I think that it was a pretty reasonable request from Blizzard. They're not a political company. They don't want their company to be used as a stepping stool for people to show their political views. So I'm more in the camp where I think that what Blizzard is doing is not quite as bad as people are making it out to be. I don't think it's necessary for players of the video game to be using that as a platform, especially ones that could be very damaging to Blizzard's income. 
All right, let's get to some emails here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. First of all, we have John here. He says, M1 Borrow currently has an interest rate of 3.75%. Is there a life event or instance where you can see yourself borrowing against your portfolio? So that is true. If I go here and all right here, this is a brokerage M1 Finance. If I go over to borrow here, this is a way that you can borrow money and the collateral is your portfolio. So the amount of money you can borrow is based off of the current value of your portfolio. It's about 33%. So if I go and I hit borrow here, remember that I have a portfolio value of around $60,000, gives me $21,500 that I'm available to borrow anytime. The interest rate for me is 3.5% because I have M1 plus, which is the paid version of M1 where you get some extra perks with it. Part of that is that you get 0.25% reduction on the interest rate. So 3.5% or even 3.75 is a really low interest rate. I could type in any amount up to 21,500, hit continue, and then that money would be placed into my cash balance here. So if I turned off auto invest, that money, the 20,000 would be sitting in cash. I could withdraw that to my bank and do whatever I want with it. I could pay my mortgage with it. I could use it as a down payment on a rental or anything like that. So that is a line of credit I have as part of my portfolio. Now, the really cool thing about this borrow, this ability to take out a loan against your portfolio is that it allows you to operate your family finances exactly how a bank operates, where you have pretty much all of your money, all of your savings is invested. You have the majority of your money in valuable assets being invested, working hard for you, making money for you. Like a bank, they have all their money working for them. They pretty much put all of their money into assets and loans and business loans and car loans, and you've seen all the products they sell. They, they use their money for everything they possibly can all the time. They don't like to keep cash on the side. They don't like money that's not working for them and making money for them. But what happens when they have short-term expenses come up or unexpected expenses? They borrow money. They take out a short-term loan so that they don't have to sell their long-term assets. That's exactly what the repo market is, is banks, they hold all of their long-term assets. They don't want to really mess with that. They don't want to deconstruct their portfolio. So what they do is if they have short-term expenses, they take out a short-term low-interest loan from other banks. They pay for those short-term expenses until they get more cash flow, and then they continue uninterruptedly investing. So I think that we should try to model our finances in similar fashion where we have the vast majority of our money working for us all the time. There's no reason that you should have tens of thousands of dollars or just a, a sum of money sitting on the side, not doing anything for you, barely keeping up with inflation. That is money that's not working hard for you. It's not going to make you wealthy that way. The way that wealthy people manage their finances is a majority of it is invested in businesses in loans in real estate in stocks and all of these different assets. That's where you need to keep the huge majority of your money. You should keep very little that's not working for you. Now, a similar question that's it's almost a follow-up to this one is, I get asked this a lot of, well, how much money do you keep in savings? How much money do you, you know, compared to how much you have invested, how much should I have in savings? The amount of savings you have just sitting in a savings account should be determined by how you feel the stability of your job is. If you work in a very stable field, that there is lots of work for you to do, um, and you have maybe multiple sources of income, like your spouse works or significant other or something like that, then you don't need to be quite as careful as somebody that 
work summer sales. They make money three months out of the year and they have to make that money last all the way till next year, right? That person might need a lot more savings than somebody that has a pretty stable field and they have multiple sources of income. So a lot of that comes out to your personal feelings. I think generally speaking, I would put it in a ratio of maybe one to five. So out of every $5 invested, you should have $1 in savings. You know, that I think that's a good ratio. Um, once you get past having 10, 20, $30,000 in savings, I know some people that they have 60, 70, $80,000 in savings and that money just sits there and devalues over time. So I personally think that the longer you keep invested, the more that you build up your investings, it can also work as a savings, right? I have some of my money sitting here in treasury bonds. I could really dip into that money. That's money that I really could use if I had a super big emergency and I needed access to a lot of capital, right? But if you build up a portfolio, you're building up a safety net, even though it's not considered the standard savings account. You're building up a line of credit that you can use anytime. You're building up assets that are worth something. They're pretty fluid too. You can sell these and have the money within two weeks, right? So if you had a big emergency, most of the time two weeks is enough to get money out and and solve whatever problems you have. So try to put most of your money in investments. I think that focusing on building up a huge amount of savings and a lot of people is, is way too conservative. I think it's a mistake and, and they should be putting that money to work for them. Tom says, do you ever think about the ethics or environmental impact the companies you invest in are having and whether they are setting out plans for a sustainable future? Okay, Tom. So I can only assume that you're referring to energy companies. I have Chevron and ExxonMobil. I've owned these oil companies and ones in the past. It's a small portion of my portfolio, but These companies are typically really heavy dividend payers. They fit with a dividend growth strategy really well, but they're also fossil fuel companies that they pollute the earth and part of the process of them refining and and the technology they use to get this energy, it's a pollutant. Um, This is a complicated subject because a lot of people have the attitude of, well, I'm just never going to invest in them. You know, I'll just find different companies to invest in. Uh, I would love to have that same attitude, but I find a few problems with it. One of them is that I feel silly saying I'm not going to support these companies by investing in them. I'm going to fill up my car with gasoline and drive to work every single day, day in and day out. And I'm going to pay them hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month for the products that they sell. It just, you know, I'm not saying that if you don't invest in them and you do that, you're a hypocrite. It just just seems silly to me. I'm supporting them as a consumer, but I'm unwilling to support them as an investor. That seems silly. So I feel like if I was unwilling to support them as an investor, if I said, I do not like the environmental impact of these companies, you know, I don't like the products that they make, I don't like it, then I would also feel obligated to not fly on airplanes that use gasoline that they produce, to not drive cars that use gasoline that they produce, or really consume any of the energy of what they're producing. Otherwise, what does that, what am I accomplishing there? I'm saying, I don't want to make money from the investment, but I'm fine supporting you by buying the energy that you're producing. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That, so there's that issue with it there. The other issue on this is that I don't think by, by being unwilling to invest in oil companies, that that is going to speed up the transition to renewable energies. In fact, there's this interview on Netflix. It's uh, the Patriot Act. He does kind of like one of those political shows. He's talking to Justin Trudeau, which is the Canadian prime minister. And he's probably one of the most progressive leaders in the world, right? He's really forward thinking all about like renewable energy, all that type of stuff, right? So he's the one that, you know, his positions are in line with that. That is his goals. And what he's doing is he's taking a lot of flack for investing in an oil pipeline that makes it so that uh, taking oil out is more efficient. 
And a lot of people say, why don't you invest in renewable energy? And he says that even though he would love to do that, you can't invest in renewable energy with a shrinking economy. If you get rid of the actual oil flow that your country is running on currently, then your economy shrinks. You don't have as much uh, economic growth and you don't have as much capital to be able to invest in renewable energy. Here's a scene where he talks about that. But I feel like it's pulling in two different directions. It's like me saying, but I'm going to lose weight by eating more Kit Kats. No. And I like It is saying that the only way to protect our climate is to make sure that there is a growing economy at the same time. And the only way to actually grow the economy is to protect our environment at the same time. So that's actually a really tense interview, all the segments of it. He really grills him on it. But this one in particular, you know, Justin Trudeau is somebody that whether you like him or not, he's very progressive. He's looking to move into renewables. He wants Canada to be a very uh, progressive place that, you know, is moving forward in that direction. But I'm sure all of his advisors and everybody around him is telling him that if you just completely avoid any investment in oil, the economy is going to shrink. And if the economy is shrinking, you don't have the money to put investments into renewables. So I think it's a similar situation. The government can give out incentives, um, certain benefits for renewable energies. The government has tried to foster the direction that we're going. And so I think we will be moving in that direction very rapidly. But the big thing that's going to cause us to move to renewables is when the price point naturally becomes competitive with oil. And when it drops below the price of oil, that's when you'll see a huge shift to renewables. Uh, until that happens, we can't just pull the plug on oil. That's not the real solution. I don't think it helps the move to renewable energy to avoid investments in current energy. Now, having said that, I did put out a tweet asking what are the biggest energy companies positioned for the future in renewable energy? And I got a lot of good input on this, a lot of companies to look at. I own one of them that's a, a pretty uh, future-driven company moved into renewables. That's NEE. So that is a utility company that I own that's really big into renewable energy. But there's a couple other ones I'm looking at. The issue is, is that there is a, a pretty good history of renewable energies that have gone bankrupt. So first, I need the company to make money and exist over the long term, not just a company that's doing uh, some kind of agenda that I enjoy, right? So I would love it to be able to put more of my money into renewable energies, but I need good companies with a proven track record that I think have extremely solid and stable future. Gregory says, hello, Joseph. I'm putting away $75 a week in a portfolio, not unlike your passive income portfolio with a 3.7% dividend yield. I was wondering how much money is too little to be putting away. Thank you for your insightful videos and the demystification of investing that you've given me and many others. Gregory. Um, I appreciate that part saying that, you know, this has helped demystify investing because for a long time, I don't know if it's just the financial field and all the lingo that they use, but investing comes off as is very hard to wrap your head around. There's lots of terms, vocabulary. It's this whole environment that you come into, and it can be very confusing and intimidating. And since it's dealing with your money, not knowing what's going on with your money leads people to not taking actions that would severely benefit their lives. So demystifying it and having people have a basic understanding of it, I think that's an awesome thing to hear. But to answer your question, how much money is too little? $75 a week. I know, like I mentioned, I put in a few thousand dollars this month, I think like three or $4,000, right? And in comparison, if you put in 75 bucks a week, you know, you're putting in $300 a month, right? It might seem like, oh man, I'm not doing enough. Do not compare yourself to other people. I've read articles on Seeking Alpha where somebody puts in seventeen dollars to $20,000 a quarter, right? So that's a little bit more than what I put in a year. They're putting in every three months. Everybody is at different levels. 
put in as much as you're realistically able to. Don't stress about keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with other people, even in the investing world. Everybody's in different situations. Plus, you don't know where they were when they were your same age, when they're their same income. People's income fluctuates throughout their lives. Rarely does it just stay the exact same throughout their entire life. In fact, when I started investing, it was early in the year of 2014. So when I first opened up an Acorns account, which is a different robo-advisor, and I started putting money in. At the time, I just drained all my savings into my home on this payment that was like $20,000 down. Uh, That was the first home that I bought. So I didn't have much money. Uh, My job didn't pay as much back then. I was still expanding my skill set at work and that type of thing. And, And over the course of like 2014, 15, and 16, all those years, I think I invested a total of about $6,000. Just this past month, I contributed almost as much as I did those three years. And that's because as my skill sets expanded, my salary has nearly doubled since then, right? And on top of doubling my salary, I've also been able to take on side work. On top of taking on side work, I've been able to pay off vehicles and reduce my debt. There's a ton of factors that play in to how much you can invest. Right now, I'm at a point where I have very low debt, very low mortgage, and high income. And those factors play into a very high contribution rate. Previously, for a good time, for almost a decade, I was at a point where I had lots of payments, lots of monthly bills. Um, My income was far less. My earning potential was far less. And so I was putting away the same as you. In fact, $75 a week at my point was my contribution rate. I remember when I was feeling pretty good about putting $300 a month in. So start where you are and keep going. If your income increases, if you get tax returns, if you get different windfalls or anything that benefits you and and helps you earn more money, that will help speed that up as well. But $75 a week is plenty. 50 bucks a week is good. If you can only put $75 every two weeks, that's fine. Or $75 a month, that's a place to start. That's a good amount. I know that people listening to investing, they're also going to be earning more money in 10 years. Most likely you'll be earning more money in 10 years. You'll be able to contribute more. But the lessons you're learning, the education you're getting, and the experience you're getting investing, and the money you'll be making by putting that money to work, I don't think is a waste at all. $75 a week is completely fine to start. I think that's actually a decent amount to start investing with. All right, guys, well, I'm going to end this one there. I've had a lot of questions, by the way, of how to evaluate companies, how to choose what company to reinvest in on a kind of a, a quantitative approach, looking at the numbers and seeing what's good to put your money in at the time. So I might be touching on that. If you're interested in how to evaluate a company, hit the subscribe button and I'll have a video out on that soon. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and want to consider supporting the content more directly, we have a Patreon that once you join it, you gain access to a Discord server where we hang out and talk about investing, new upcoming videos. It has automated dividend alerts of when companies raise and cut their dividends. And we discuss all sorts of things, portfolio discussion, research and ideas, different breaking news topics and all that type of stuff. So if that's of interest of you, consider joining that as well. There's a link in the description of this video.